The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm your host, Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner. We are broadcasting live from Seattle, Washington. Today I have a special guest, our Director of Research, Eric Lair. Good afternoon, Eric, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ken. Great to be here. Yeah, good to see you. We're going we're gonna to talk about some of the articles that you've been uh, forwarding me. Continue our discussion from last week on... Uh, that we didn't get to, which was the problem of trying to identify award-winning funds and or using award-winning funds to identify future winners. I wanted to read through a few articles uh, about looking back at 2012, some lessons we can learn. Continuing on that discussion, Eric, um, last week we talked a lot about the way we would we reviewed each asset class and some surprising returns that came out of different areas like international real estate. Uh, we talked about small and value and the way we, we diversify across those investment asset classes and reviewed that. But uh, So I thought we could kind of click through some of these, talk a little bit um, about um, some of the wrong calls that were made. And, uh, and I think you had an article here about uh, some of the tax changes for college savings or planning for college. We could talk about that. Before we do all that, I'm going to give out our contact information. Usually Ethan does it. He's out today. If you want to send us an email throughout the show, again, this is live, and Simon will be happy to respond or put it through. You can send us an email at uh, contact at empiradio.com, contact at empiradio.com, or you can give us a call. I think this goes through the channel of Voice America. You can call us, and they'll patch you in. 866-472-5790. So if you have any thoughts, commentary, questions, or just want to say hello, tell us you're listening, please give us a call. Throughout the week, though, we're happy to uh, invite you as a listener to to uh, tap into our vast financial uh, expertise here at uh, no charge or obligation to you. Just give us a call throughout at the office here, 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. And uh, if you have a portfolio question or a financial planning question, we'll do our best to get an answer for you. And uh, if you're willing and interested, we'd be happy to go through that on the program as well. All right, Eric, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into this. I was reading... Uh, through one of the 
one of the pu- publications on Dimensional Funds Advisor, uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors website. They have a guy named Weston Wellington there, and he writes a lot of articles. We've had him on our program in the past, and I'm sure he's in one of the archives. If you want to hear that interview, and that interview, by the way, was during the in the midst of the financial crisis um, before we hit the bottom in March of 2009, and some of the advice that Weston was giving. Uh, and we were giving at that time what turned out to be very, very good advice. And in essence was, hey, now is not the time to panic and sell out of stocks. And we went through some of the reasons why. Um, or it turned out to be very, very prudent advice if you had followed it. Unlike some of the advice that we'll see was given in the market this last year by others. So feel free to jump in, Eric, along the way, and uh, I'll try to present some questions to you. And we'll we'll see where the conversation takes us. That sounds good to me, Ken. Sounds pretty good. Okay, so he writes, I look back at 2012. Although many investors have expressed frustration with stock market fluctuations in recent years, the time required to recover losses from the October 2007 peak appears broadly consistent with past cycles. So he talks about it took nearly four and a half years, Eric, to, for the cumulative wealth of the S&P, including re- dividends being reinvested, so the price appreciation and, and dividends, to finally reach an all-time uh, record measured by month end uh, in March of 2012 and then finish the year 3.3% above previous high, high water mark, which was set in October of 2007. Uh, results were slightly better for small company. Russell 2000 type of strategy, and we talked about that. But what's interesting is he posts up a table, uh, and he says, you know, the, uh, the, the, the recovery time has uh, been about average or what we would expect in past market cycles. So I just thought I'd take a look at that. And you look at the peak month for the S&P was in October of 2007. And uh, the loss through the trough from the very – from that peak to the bottom on a month end was a 50.9% loss, a decline in value that we saw in the S&P 500. To get back to a break-even point, counting for dividends, it took uh, till March of 2012 is what he's saying, and that was 4.4 years. But if you look at some of the other major market declines, we had one in began in March of 2000 and ended in September of 2002. It was a 43% drop, and it took 6.6 years. We didn't get back to to even until October of 2006, so we didn't have uh, too much time there. It was one year, October of 6 to 7, of, of uh, being above that level. Prior to that, you had the 1987 period where we dropped 29.5%. It took about 1.8 years to get back to even. Uh, December 1972, 37% decline, took three and a half years. Um, if we go all the way back, I'll skip some of these, but if we go back to February of 1937, we had a 50% decline then. It took seven years to get back. And if you had invested all your money in the S&P, what would have been the S&P 500 in August of 1929? You had an 83% decline, Oof. which is pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, think how how much panic there was in the markets, um, experiencing a 50%, but 83% of your investable assets. I mean, we know the stories of people jumping out of windows and all kinds of stuff through the back in the uh, the stock market crash 
the onset of the Great Depression, but it took 15.4 years to recover. Uh, you have to have some incredible patience and discipline. And so every year, you know, he talks about how every year, uh, you know, we can draw some acknowledge, uh, some measure of solace acknowledging the past generations of investors often found their patience sorely tested and every, every year brings its share of surprises. Perhaps the biggest surprise of 2012 was the strength in stock and bond prices around the world despite a steady stream of discouraging news. Individual investors and professionals alike were often flummoxed by markets that failed to behave in accordance with their pessimistic assessment of the future. And he gives a few examples, and I thought it would be fun to just click through these. Sure. Um, talk about it a little bit. But first quarter of 2012, uh, the first part, the S&P, was actually up 12.59%. And here's a quote. Uh, in- investors go into 2012 hunkered down, frustrated, and skeptical. If there is a common theme among analysts, forecast for stocks, commodities, and currencies, it is to brace for more of the wild swings that were the hallmark of 2011. So that was out of the Wall Street Journal. It was printed on uh, January 3rd of 2012. Something I'll just add to that. I Go saw in the, in the news today, the Dow just hit a five-year high. So since 2000, I guess early 2008, that would have been, which is, uh, like you said, with with all the, the negative market news, it's it's interesting to see these indices, the S&P, as you just mentioned, back uh, in November, I think, and then the Dow now are where they were before the crisis. You just you wouldn't think that with the kind of financial news we hear. You wouldn't. And, you know, Ethan and I were, were mentioning in a couple of, as we were heading into the year end and the last couple of programs about how it wasn't a lot, there was a lot of negative news in 2012 coming into the beginning. And the next citation was also out of the, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, but it was Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist is the most bearish market strategist at any major Wall, Wall Street firm when it comes to forecasting the outlook for stocks in 2012. He took the same pessimistic view last year and it turned out to be the most accurate. Uh, a new year, but the same old pessimism was the title of the article, and that was January seventh. So clearly, he was he was dramatically incorrect, and that just sets the stage for this idea of hey, if he happened to be right the year before, does that mean we should all be listening to him this year? And my proposition to you, as a listener and investor out there, is no. It's it's not a good idea if someone happens to be right because the the game is flawed. The game of predicting unforeseen future events or how the market will react to the current events as they evolve is a dangerous game. No matter how many times in the recent past I've I've been able to get it right, recognizing that there is always a chance I'll get it right by pure random chance alone. You have anything to say about that? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. If, if I predict we're going to have 10% returns every year, I'll probably be right sometime. But, I mean, I don't think that makes me any kind of market guru. It's just it's that stop clock is right twice a day thing. In January of two, uh, 16th of 2012. Ethan, are you uh, are you live here? I think we're live Ethan here. Ethan Brogan just joined us. Thanks for, for coming in. Thank you very much. Apologize for being late today. It's okay. You're a busy guy. Down in Tacoma. 
the uh, the world economy will experience a brutal slowdown. Every European country will be in recession in 2012 and probably in 2013. Equity markets around the world will still will top out during this quarter and then enter and then enter the next down leg in the cyclical bear market that started last spring. That is a quotation to uh, attributed to Felix Zula from Zulif Asset Management. And it was in uh, Barron's 2012 Roundtable, Part 1, January 16, 2012. Oh, yes. Now, I don't know if Zuloff is still managing money, but... Uh, Let me guess, he pulled out of uh, Europe probably uh, in July of 2012. <laughs> High probability. Probably as High they were hitting the, the strides of the, the, the initial parts of the recession. And, of course, since then, the, they've been the strongest returns of the equity markets since that date. So, you know, the, uh, those there's more in there, but he cites, skip real quick to the second quarter. Uh, the S&P's down a couple of percent. And the quote here uh, from the Financial Times was, nearly one Spaniard in four is unemployed, according to data released yesterday, as the country's financial predicament prompted a government minister to talk of a crisis of enormous proportions. Victor Mallet and Robin, Robin Wigglesworth um, Spain jobless rate nears one in four financial times. That was April 28th. And so the point of that one is there wasn't any major prediction there. It's just the sentiment of the headlines at that time. Suddenly it has become the next, and suddenly it has become easy to see how the euro, that grand flawed experiment monetary union without political union could come apart at the seams. We're not all we're not talking about a distant prospect either. Things could fall apart with stunning speed in a matter of months, not years. And that was Paul Krugman. The title was Apocalypse Soon. <laughs> These are the titles. I had to stop because I was laughing. Apocalypse yeah. Soon, New York Times. That was May 18th of 2012. Feeble hiring by U.S. employers in May roiled markets and dimmed the already already cloudy outlook for an economic uh, for an economy that appears to be following Europe and Asia into slowdown. That was also in the Wall Street Journal in June of 2000. Yeah, those things strike me as interesting because everyone has this tendency, I think probably we all do, is to see patterns where patterns don't exist. So it's easy to take the most recent data uh -huh. of any downturn or any trend and project that indefinitely into the future. But the problem is, of course, that things don't, don't go exactly uh, as we project because unforeseen things happen. Uh, as time goes along, that affect the outcome. And that's why people are so frequently wrong, you know, in making these types of predictions. It's easy to say, hey, this is the tra trajectory you're on, but not understand the things that affect that trajectory in the future because they're unforeseen and unknown. And we're spending some time, go we're going to have to take a break here, Ethan, but we're spending the time to go over this the last few shows as part of this New Year's uh, agenda here of, of getting you to recognize the ongoing issues in Wall Street and the media that lead to bad and poor investment decisions. Mm -hmm. So well, let's take a quick break. We'll continue through some of the, these headlines from 2012 and get back to what is the correct thing to do. All right. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back in Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host, uh, Ethan Broga, here alongside uh, Eric and Ken today. Uh, if you'd like to join the program, you can contact us via email at contact at empiradio.com or by phone at 866-472-5790. And uh, just before the break again, we were recapping many of the predictions um, for 2012 and kind of reviewing those today. That is true, Ethan. That is true. I can't argue with that. Um, so we were kind of going through the year, Weston's article, uh, just dissects some of the headlines throughout the year, each quarter. We're finishing up the second quarter. Uh, some of the headlines there. Um, Greece will be forced to return to the drachma and devalue, and the default will cause bank runs and money flowing into Germany and the United States as the only viable safe haven bet. So that was uh, New York Times. Um, uh, that was posted in the New York Times. One Wall Street seer says the Greek tragedy is near. Uh, in the Financial Times, June 24, 2012, with leading investors shunning shares, a six-decade passion for equities has come to an end, leading to a less flexible, more conservative model of corporate financing that was out of stock by John Authors and Kate Burgess. Hmm. Uh, another headline was, there is no natural flow into equities for the next five to ten years. The rules of the game have changed. Uh-oh. The ever-present, the game has changed. The old rules no longer apply. Yeah. Um, that was from the Alliance uh, Investment Management, John Authors and Kate Burgess, out of stock. So it's the same article. Uh third quarter, so now we're heading in to the third quarter of 2012, and uh, investors are investors already fretting about the health of the world's biggest economies now face another worry, disappointing earnings. The pillar of strength is U.S. corporate earnings, and now we're seeing signs that that is cracking, says none other than chief uh, stock analyst at Morgan Stanley. 
um, Jonathan Chang, new jolt looms for investors' earnings. That was in the Wall Street Journal, t- t- July 2009. The U.S. economy slowly, sharply uh, slowed sharply in the second quarter, growing just 1.5 percent as U.S. consumers slashed spending and businesses grew more cautious about hiring and investing, underscoring that an already wobbly recovery is losing even more steam. That was July 28th, and again in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, there's several more, but uh, if small investors needed any more reason to be disgusted with the stock market, they got it Wednesday. Wednesday's tumble wasn't quite as scary as the nearly $1 trillion of drop of May 2010, but it conveyed the same sense of markets spinning out of control and trading machinery gone mad. <laughs> that was Jason's why. When, re- when will retail investors call it quits? It will, hang on, I'm confused August by August 2. I'm yeah. confused by his, uh, his assertion there. I, He's the guy he wrote on, you know, personal finance and uh, investor psychology and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He wrote a great book, actually, right? Yeah. Uh, who says you need to know yourself a little bit and you know and try to avoid the da- the pitfalls of listening to your. You know, maybe in the article, Ethan, because that was the that was kind of the tagline of it. Uh, maybe he goes on to just explain that hey, this is what is going on with small investors. I don't know that he feels it's the right thing uh, to yeah. do, right? Yeah, fair enough. But it's certainly part of the headline. Sure. Um, and what was going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, I also like the, uh, I don't know if you got to this already, but the, the returns for the quarter, for the third quarter 2012, were pretty darn good, right? Right. In spite of these headlines, uh, 6.35% for the S&P just in the quarter. And the World Index uh, XUS did 7.45, or 49 rather. Pretty amazing. So there's a lot of articles, actually. We won't go through them all. But he does a good job of just showing how. And the, the point of it is, is if you allowed the headlines or the general sen- sentiment of what gets published to direct your investment strategy, you have a recipe for potential disaster, mm-hmm. even in a positive market. So you're, you're missing out, as we talked about, on multiple years of equity returns by being on the sidelines of at the worst possible time. And there's something interesting. As I was going through that, there's a slide that they put together that shows the relationship between the economic cycle and the stock market. So they call it market risk premium is counter-cyclical. And they have the business cycle and then the risk premium, and they, are, they move in opposition. So, for example... Ethan Eric, many investors assume stock returns would follow the business cycle. Or in a booming business cycle, you would think, hey, we've got great forward-looking stock return opportunities. So one of the natural inclinations is to say, hey, I'll, I'll wait until the, until the economy picks up, right? Right. And then you I'll hear, jump. You hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. Let's yeah. wait till things get better and the economy picks up. But in reality, if you look at the returns and you look at the the, the economic cycle, you see that. The stock market has historically offered a higher expected return or premium, for example, over riskless investments like treasury bills during a period of time when the economy is weak. Um, the market premium has been lower in times when the economy is, is done very well. Now, part of the issue with this, if you said, well, why don't we just do the opposite then, you know? The problem is that you don't know necessarily until after the fact that you've entered a recession or you've exited a recession. You have a general idea that things in the, in the economy are going good or bad, right? But there, it's not 
enough to be able to accurately predict the turns, particularly when they can happen very quickly and in severe fashion. Um, you can also get whipsawed, where, hey, we think we're going into into a bad time or whatever, and we're really not. It's just a temporary setback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what you see, if you looked at the graph, and maybe we can take this, Eric, and put it on our blog, because it's kind of an interesting uh, graph that they put together. I don't know if you've seen it, but shows the uh, the risk premium or the forward expected returns matched up again. It's almost an, a perfectly inverse relationship or a negative correlation. The reason why it works, if you in a, as if it was a hindsight investment strategy, would work great, is because you know, you you now know what the economic data was after the fact. And we wrote about that during the last when we were entering into the crisis. About you know, usually it takes a year to twenty four months to before the the Nuber you know group there, the Economic Bureau uh, establishes the date we entered and and then exited the recession. Right. There was also, remember, uh, you probably remember off the top of your head, Ken, but uh, I think Larry Swedrow uh, talked about when um, unemployment is high, higher than, say, 5%. I, th- I forget the exact figures, but let's, say, let's call it 5%. That stock returns are actually better than average, and when unemployment's below 5%, stock returns are below average. It's kind of those counterintuitive of things. Well, I mean, I think part of that would be the market also is kind of a leading indicator. Yeah. It, just, it can move so much faster than... Than the like, real economy can mm-hmm. exactly, and what, what's happening here is if you're in a, going in through a recession and say a company's earnings are declining, investors become more risk adverse. They're saying, "Hey, I don't like the way this is going." Right? I'm, I'm like the company I paid this amount, of, this price for for this amount of earnings is now earning less, or it's not growing as fast, and so I'm worried. You know, I'm worried this can continue or or get worse. So they bid the price the market. Bids the, the price of the stock down, but if the stock has a, the same long-term opportunity set, it's becoming cheaper, and the price coming down is increasing the forward expected return. That's the natural relationship right. here between current stock prices and future expected returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as companies are doing that, stocks are prices are going down. It raises the expected return. Part of that is if it's risky, if it's perceived to be risky, people demand a higher forward return. What's what's hard, I think, for most people to grasp is that the demand is what's driving that demand for a higher return is what's driving the prices down. So as they go down further and further, the expected returns going up and up. But it's at a time where your people are becoming more and more risk adverse. They they have less tolerance. For wanting to take risk in those in the stocks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean. So it's always a challenging situation, even for us when we're working with people to explain this or to get them to see that. And you know, now that the market's gone down, our forward future return is higher. It may be the same as it, our long-term return. Maybe the expected return will be the same as it was when we first started. But now that stock prices are going down. They're up. That's how we're going to get back to the long-term average. Right. That's how we get back. So, yeah, I mean, even going through our last crisis, I remember having people talk about, gosh, I just went down 50% or the market went down 50%. That means we have to get 100% returns to get it back even, right? That's right. And there's no way that's going to happen. But wait a second. That's exactly what does happen. Mm-hmm. You so, know, we, we were talking about the uh, the time frame for some of those recoveries at the beginning of this article. Uh-huh. Um, now, 
we've been talking about the S&P 500, but it, you know, I was looking at the performance calculator that we have that Eric updates, and you know, if you if you d- diversify um, outside of just the general U.S. stock market, and you looked at say the S&P 500 as an example, you, know, you said, well, um, the longest recovery period since. Uh, if we run the data from 1970, let's not go back to the, the depression here, but running okay. it because from 1970 to now, we we are better able to compare globally diversified portfolios right. relative to just owning a domestic U.S. portfolio. Mm-hmm. So that's what's relevant about that time period. And if you look at it, the longest recovery, um, the average of five worst drawdowns of the S&P for that period is about a 37 percent decline. So hey, it took. Now, if you average the five worst from our most recent was over 50%, uh, starting in November of 07 and ending at the end of February there. Um, it, the, the recovery time uh, was the longest was 74 months, then 53 months, then 42 months, then 23, and then 21. These are the, the five longest recovery uh, periods. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you diversified you know, and you took our kind of our moderately um, weighted, we call it targeted premium three. It's kind of our you, you know we're we're waiting towards emerging, we're waiting towards small and other unique investment asset classes, the REITs and things we talked about in the last program. If you look at that one, you know while the, while the worst drawdown was about the same, a little bit more than the S and P in the single instance. The, the average uh, of the worst five, for example, was was closer to, to 29%, so a little less than the 37, right? Mm-hmm. And and you, and you look at the recovery periods on these, uh, you're looking at the greatest being 42 months. And by the way, then the, the globally diversified portfolio, outside of this last instance, the other four instances... Uh, declines were less than the S&P 500. Right. So if you have something, when everyone was screaming about modern portfolio theory, this idea of diversification failing, I, you and I sat here baffled, flummoxed, <laughs> as I'm to what they were talking flummoxed? about, because it worked really well, actually. The fact that it doesn't, if it works four out of five times... Are you telling me that's a that's a bad strategy? Or, yeah, you're, you know? All of a sudden you're saying, so you're going to bet... For the one one out of five times where it works, and open for the best. Right, you're doing the opposite of what you should be doing. The right. oddity is, if it did work perfectly in every scenario, yeah. including a global crisis, we wouldn't expect that to happen. But do we expect to have a global crisis every year now? Hopefully not. Right. Are we going to have them though? Yes. Sure. But if you look at the recovery times, we're going to have to take a quick break. But if we do, you see that the average recovery period is is also significantly shorter with the globally diversified portfolio. So you have two potential benefits. One is a higher return by weighting the way we talked about last week in our program. Mm-hmm. If you didn't hear it, just go back and let's do it. But now you have a risk management element of it. And that risk is is being measured in two ways. One is the total average decline, but also the time it takes to recover your money right. was on average shorter. Yep, That's the magic about what we're trying to do to get people to invest better, Ethan. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be uh, we'll be right back to proceed on with the second half of the show.
business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside uh, Eric and, and Ken today. Um, we were just kind of recapping the some of the headlines from the prior year. Um, it was a pretty good year for stocks, as you probably know by now. And um, in spite of the doom and gloom out there, um, and all a lot, of, a lot of the headlines we've read to you today, uh, things look or did pretty well. Uh, in the last this is the last segment. I don't recall exactly, but I think we have one more after this. But we're going to talk Two about more. a Bloomberg article. I think next. That uh, Eric you introduced to us just a little bit ago. I thought we'd go through some of that. Okay, before we uh, move on to that, I had something to, to add on. We were talking oh, about sure. modern portfolio theory before we went to commercial. Yeah. And uh, something you pointed out earlier in the show is that the what, from July or August on, international stocks did better than any other asset class. That's right. Uh, in December, emerging markets were up, I want to say, 6%, 7% for the month. Just the month. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just the month. And um, if you if you just in the S and P or domestic portfolios, you missed all that. Right. You had kind of a lackluster second half of the year. Yeah. You know, it's funny how that works. I mean, when when things are are, are, are bad with stocks or a certain part of the stock market, people tend to want to avoid those. But can that help? It goes back to what you were saying earlier about the future expected returns being higher as stock prices decline. And then we see that all the time. I mean, you can't predict exactly when those things are going to turn. Yeah. Um, but you know that as stock prices decline, particularly with a diversified portfolio, the, the, the future expected return is higher. And therefore, it is uh, worthy of having it in your portfolio. And I just want to mention, you know, we get into some pretty complicated discussions here sometimes. But on a basic level, if you go back to why am I investing in stocks in the first place? Why is anyone even investing, Right. And it's it, it it should be to get to help you. Most of us are out here. We're working jobs, you know, and we're it's hard enough, right? Just saving enough to get your current expenses for most of us under control and paid for. 
And then you have to think about retirement. There's constant issues about Social Security and, and retirement. Mm-hmm. Social Security is not really designed to, to have you living in the lap of luxury. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> That's true. Or even have a, I mean, right now, most people, what's the max, you're you are a retirement oh. expert, what's the maximum payout on Social Security for a single person? Is it something like $2,600 yeah. a month? Or, uh, year per year, it's like 38000 I mean, I'm not sure the exact figure, but around okay. 40, a little less than 40 is the maximum. So if you wait until 70, paid into it all your whole life, the most you're going to get probably is no, no more than forty grand a year. So if I work my whole life, right, and I'm paying into this, and I'm ready to retire, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna vacation and do all the things that you've been putting off. What is that? Nice work, son. If I'm gonna do that, I I get then a check at the maximum, and I'd have to make a lot of money to get that, right? right. Because I don't see, you know, I I see it's typically between twenty five and thirty five thousand or whatever. Yeah. As depending on when you take it, obviously, and how much you you uh, if you were at the top, uh, all how much of your income was it was uh, associated with the Social Security tax? It's it's not exactly going to give you the lifestyle of no question about that, it that that you would most of us would dream of right. when we're after we put in an entire lifetime of work. Right. Let's put it that way. Right. Yep. So in order to do that, you need to put some money away, and the higher the rate of return you can get. The less money that you have to put away today. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so if we look back and you know, we just looked at the S&P, and, and this is where this, this magic and miracle of compounding that Einstein was so fascinated with. He said it was like one of the world's wonders, right? The eighth wonder of the world or something. Eighth like wonder of the world was compound interest. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the S&P and you put $100,000 in it in 1970, it's averaged about 9.94, so just a little under 10%. That turned to $5.8 million. Dollars. Now today's dollars, if we adjusted that, that's about that's under a million dollars. Not bad though, right? I mean that relative to doing nothing, ten times more. Now what if what if you did you just put it all into a very conservative portfolio? Um, let's just say you did something like treasury bills, right? Instead of having uh, the the million dollars in today's dollars. You have about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! For that period, right? So it's a huge difference in terms of the lifestyle of taking a million dollars in today's dollars, and that's that's just a hundred thousand if you invested, which over a, a 40, uh, 42, 43 year period isn't isn't that difficult to do, to do. You know what I mean? It seems like sure. a lot of money, but if you're just consistently putting in, if you just put a thousand dollars a uh, a month in, for example, you know, and, and I, I know maybe that for some of us is a, is a lot of money, but if you had your if you count your four hundred one k and the match that your employer makes and everything you can buy, so if you can do that, um, you can, you can accumulate a pretty nice sum of money. But mm-hmm. the difference in that compound rate, I mean, if we look at going back, and we'll, we'll move on here, I, I just wanted to make this general point, Ethan. The difference uh, in that return, now you've, you've been in the S&P, you, get, you turned it into $5.8 million, 100000 But if you allocated into, say, something that was globally diversified, that did have some 
access to some of the higher returning investments that we talked about last week, the mm-hmm. small, the values, the emerging markets, REITs, some of that. You bring the rate up from ni- almost 10% to uh, 13.7%. And now, brace yourself. This is where the difference in compounding really gets crazy because now you have that same 100000 you have 20, almost $25 million dollars. Wow. That's the loveliest thing I've ever heard. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Right? So that what's real dollars? What's real dollars? Okay, let's keep it real. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, let's either? keep it real. Let's keep it real. Okay. If you want to keep it real, instead of the nine hundred and fifty seven thousand that you'd have in the S P, you'd have uh, four million dollars in today's Unbelievable. Dollar. That is unbelievable. Right? I can't believe that. So all you had to do was was Take a different approach to investing. Now, we're talking about generally here passive, uh, in general, passively managed portfolios. Buying the S&P, then saying, well, I'm not going to do that. If I went back to 1970 and I, I did, you were in that hot tub time machine, Ethan, you know, you saw that movie, right? I did. It's pretty funny. Yes. We put you in that hot tub. We shoot you back to the 70s. <laughs> um, and you, you knew what you knew now, right? You said, hey, there's a better way to invest. What would be the first thing, right? Well, hey, I'm not going to monkey around with trying to pick stocks because these guys aren't even getting the S&P returns. And we'll, now we'll go through some of that in a sec. They're not even getting it. Um, but also, I know how to diversify and build my portfolio better. So the, the retirement I'm going to have, the difference between having, you know, like I said, in the treasuries, 150000 in today's dollars, right? Right. Versus, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase and you let the stock market do some work. And I realized through that period of time, mm-hmm. there's going to be all kinds of crisis. You know, we could go back to 70 and we could go through all of them, right? It's been a lot of wacky stuff. Very stressful, right? Tough markets. You know, we talked about the, the, the major downturns we've experienced. But I'm going to stay the course. You know, I'm 20 years old and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for the next 40, so I'll be 60 263, and now I'm ready to retire. And all I'm saying is, you put 100,000 away, by the way, which, again, if you break that over a 42 year period, it doesn't take a lot. Sure. I don't know if any of you guys are doing any math here while I'm doing all the legwork, but. No, no. My math. point is, let me get back to the point, I'll give you a good point, uh, is, okay, well, now I diversify. I go from 150,000 to 957 by just being in equities, and then I take that up a notch, you know, like to 11 on your amp. Let's go to 10. We're going to 11. And now I have $4 million. And my question to you, and that's in today's dollars, you know, nominal returns or, or actual dollars would be $24 million, almost $25 million. My question to you is, what kind of lifestyle can you lead that's different between having $150,000 and $4 million? Well, I think it's a highly personal question. Yeah. But certainly better is the general answer. Should we have a little significantly better? A little dream time. Each of us go around. So. <laughs> I, I, I thoroughbred horse. I hold silver. That's what I would say to that. I mean, you can, you can live high on the hog there with that, right? No well, question about it. Particularly if you move to Mexico, right? <laughs> with your horse, I guess yeah. so. I think you could have a nice little spread on the beach here, Ethan. Wear your sandals and your beard. And with the extra four million dollars, I, I bet you're right. You're right. I mean, I think I think you'd be doing well. No doubt about it. But really, it's just a function of making a couple of very specific decisions. One, I'm committed to saving and putting away. Yep. And I'm not going to listen to all the nonsense that we're talking about here. Don't monkey around with it. I'm just going to stay invested. 
It, indeed. Um, like a rock. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be patient and disciplined, and I'm going to stick with it. And then I'm going to use what we call an empirical or evidence-based approach to this. I'm going to take the best science out here and apply it, and then I'm going to tune everything else out. And, mm-hmm. and really, that's kind of what we're saying with as we're going through this exercise of demonstrating and tearing apart article after article, professional after professional, author after author in here, financial, right, that, that's continuously getting it wrong and really skipping the real positive advice and where are you trying to go with all this. Indeed. All Eric, aboard! Eric, what say you? I, I agree. All right. I think that's good stuff. Yeah, two minutes here, Chuck. What uh, what was the next article? You were talking about a Bloomberg article. Do you want to take us through that, Eric? We got a couple minutes to start. What was what is that? What you wanted to talk about next? Yeah, the all of almost all of Wall Street got 2012 market calls wrong. Oh, okay. Go for it. So you want me to read that? Uh, you know, if you're comfortable. Um, it's pretty long, so maybe you should just summarize. All right. Well, <laughs> we've only got a minute, so here. I'll, I appreciate that, Eric. Um, <laughs> it seems like I read some of this last week, but I, I think you started off. Yeah, uh, it goes through. Basically, the article goes through the gamut of of professionals, just like the Weston article did, and just talks about how each of them got it wrong. Um, so I don't want to belabor the same point here, if you know. But that that's the uh, that's the gist of the Bloomberg. Almost all of Wall Street. Got 2012 market calls wrong, and maybe you can do, can you post a link to this on our blog? I can do that, and then with your comments about it, and mm-hmm. so you can just go to the blog, go to the empirical.net. Um, we'll point to that. I want to come back to because we didn't did we get to talk about the award winning funds last time? Uh, no, we did not. Ken. I thought we could talk about that article that you forwarded me, Eric. I think it's relatively new. Yes, the Market Watch, Wall Street Journal. The problem with award winning funds. So. Um, and we're going to have to take a, a little breather, but the idea is how do you address, we've given you some basic principles here, but how do you address now being bombarded with great investment ideas or hot investment ideas? Yeah, we've talked about sort of the opposite of that with the, the dire doom and gloom predictions, What not to tune into that. But what if all the news is really good? What should you do? Or, you know, there's funds out there that have five-star ratings and done really well. Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break. And again, if you want to, uh, before we go on a break, if you want to give us a call or email, contact at empiradio.com. Contact at empiradio.com or give us a call at 1-866-472-5790. That's nine or zero. Nine or nine. We'll take a quick break and be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. 
Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. <laughs> empirical investing radio everyone's pointing me to the fact we're talk. back is making Ethan laugh <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, yeah we're here for our last segment today I think we're going to talk about a, a market watch article thank you for that appreciate it um, you get these girls out of here Simon we're trying to focus <laughs> Go yeah ahead. so let's get let's get started on the last segment and uh, okay. knock this out I think this is going to be good, a good segment to finish up uh, let's knock it out and uh, what, what we were going to talk about was this art- articulal that Eric Ford made. It's called The Problem with Award-Winning Funds. It was Chuck Jaffe, uh, Market Watch. And he says, it's award season, and while most folks are focused on the Golden Globes and Oscars, mutual fund investors just saw the industry's biggest honors go out this week. This was last week. Uh, when research researcher Morningstar revealed its Manager of the Year awards. Ooh. Must be a wild party. Sound huh? effect, please. Ooh, uh, must be no. a, a real frenzy going to that event. Well, you know, it does mean a lot of money for those guys. There you go. Thank you for that. For investors, it's nice to see the manager uh, of a fund you own recognized. That applies to one of my fund managers this year. And Morningstar's own website suggests that earning the honor makes a manager part of the Morningstar Hall of Fame. But the awards themselves highlight some difficulty in deciding who should be running your money. And whether you want to pursue a manager at the height of their fame. Morningstar's 2012 Managers of the Year are... Can I get a drum roll, please? Simon's a little slow on the uptake. Yeah. It's uh, tough. It's tough over there. Bill, Fry, Bill Fries and Mark Henneman of Mares and Power Growth in the domestic stock category. Woo-hoo. Rajiv Vane of Virtus Foreign Opportunities and... Virtus Emerging Markets for the International Stock Investing, Mark Kiesel of PIMCO Investment Grade Corporate Bond Fund for Fixed Income Investing, the team at TFS Market Neutral is an alternative investing, and David Giro of T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation in the Allocation category. All were stellar top-of-the-peer group performers last year, and in fact, over the past three and five years, long enough, that investors should be comfortable with the idea they would be buying a good fund if they got it now. Here's where the art and the feelings come in. Just like how it's easy to assume an Academy Award-winning actor's films will always be good, it's easy to be complacent and figure that the award-winning fund managers will also give solid performance. Yet an actor is only 
ever as good as his or her next film. Anyone who saw Rocky 2, 3, 4, 5, not to mention virtually any other Sylvester Hey, wait a second. I love, I love Rocky 3. Never quite got the like same Rocky feeling III. they did out of the original Rocky. Well, that's probably Which true. earned Best Picture honors in 1976. It was a good film. Mr. It was T, solid, though. It was a solid flick. I do like Mr. T. Clubber Lang? Yeah. A pity the fool. <laughs> Still, no one is going back to uh, look back at Morningstar Hall of Fame, right? No one is, is going to look back and see it filled with stinkers, is what he's saying here. Yes, there are some fallen angels like Bill Miller. Oh, boy. He was the uh, former Leg Mason value manager whose streak of 15 calendar years of beating the S&P 500 was followed by a spat spate of stunning underperformance that ultimately overshadowed his greatness. But those are few and far between. More common is a case like Bruce Berkowitz, manager of the Fairhome Fund. It was Morningstar's equity manager of the year in 2009. In two of the three years since winning the award, Berkowitz has been at the very top of his peer group. And uh, However, he finished dead last in his peer group for 2011 with a loss of 35%. Wow. Um, That's tough to do in a positive market. Now, neither Berkowitz nor Morningstar would apologize for that. They're, they're not going to. They shouldn't. And, uh, right he believes they shouldn't. <laughs> uh, the fund manager is stuck to his guns. And uh, Morningstar analysts always say they like managers who follow their process. They're thick and thin. So anyway, he gets a positive silver rating from the, uh, the Morningstar team. Um, Just for sticking, sticking to his guns. But if you know. bought into Berkowitz's fund... Uh, <laughs> Odd, right? <laughs> good job. You allow 35% in an up market. That's good, I guess. You're so no disappointed as the fund uh, imploded. They uh, they felt, uh, those familiar with Berkowitz style felt the 2011 downturn was more severe than anything they might have forecast. Anyway, I, I don't know that he has anything too groundbreaking here, but other than let's talk about... Um, Let's fill in the gaps here where Chuck, dropped, I think, drops the ball. All of this Morningstar stuff is complete nonsense. Well, you guys did a show, uh, I think you and, and Sean actually did a show a few months back where we went. there was a study on the Morningstar uh, five-star rated funds that um, pretty consistently underperformed in the years following their five-star ratings. So let's pull up a slide real quick. I'll cite a, a couple of quick statistics um, on the success of of these these particular funds, and I'm going to pull up right here. But the reason why I say all this morning star stuff is nonsense is because there's been no real evidence that picking previously perform high performing funds uh, will result in a superior forward looking return to beat the market. Um, I think the result is actually opposite, right? Yeah, the the best correlation to the the potential return in the studies I've seen is a correlation to the lower the expense ratio of the product, the, the, the greater the chance over a longer and longer period of time they will drift towards the top. And what you see over a long period of time is the highest expense funds tend to be towards the bottom, and the ranking tends to fall in line with their expense ratios with the broad group of active managers totaling up the market return in essence, minus all of their expenses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why you know what we're saying is it's far more important to understand the way you're building your portfolio along the lines of the different investment asset classes that are worthy 
and add diversification, as we talked about just at the beginning of the program, increased return, reduced downside risk in four out of five of the, of the downturns yeah. since 1970, a shorter duration of recovery time, those are all significantly more valuable uh, uh, ways of putting the, the portfolio and, and value add than, than trying to identify the next superstar manager. Or I think going coming out of the break, you were alluding to, should I be tracking any of these hot investments that are doing well? Say the market did poorly in 2000. Somebody probably did quite well. Maybe it was the uh, reverse. Um, you know, it, during the crisis, there were funds that are shorting the stock market. Right. And they probably did quite well, right? The leverage funds. If you're simply looking at the top performing funds in the in the mutual fund category of, of the newspaper, right? Which ones did better? Which one? Um, it's going to lead you to some funds that have done phenomenally well over a short period of time, and it can be very tempting to say, hey, why don't I throw some money at that? Indeed. But uh, it's, uh. Not, it's not a great approach in reality. So I don't know how much time we've got here, about a minute or so? Looks like about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Maybe I can, I'll pull the slides I wanted to, or the statistics I wanted to give you um, and then we come back from the break on the last segment. We'll start with that and then move along in our topic. This is the last this, segment. This is the last segment. Yep. So it might have to be tomorrow uh, or next week. I'm sorry. I don't see. Do you, let me yeah. see if I can find it real quick. I know. I, I think the main point is this. After, after things do very, very well, they tend to attain the five-star rating, right? Um, yeah. And then afterwards, after you – and it gets a lot of publicity, people buy into it. It doesn't perform as well after the fact. It'd be like buying Apple at seven hundred dollars a share. Probably not a real good idea, based on the first prior couple of years run up there. It's the same type of thing with most here. It of these is. Funds. So, in in two thousand eleven, the number uh, of of managers that underperform in the large cap core group was ninety five percent. Wow, really? That's what I was trying to get. To. That's staggering. On that note, that's the end of our program today. We'll be a lot more chock full of exciting stuff for next week but uh, <laughs> thanks for tuning in empirical investing radio and again feel free to give us a call here throughout the week 1-800-923-4307 if you want to run any ideas by us uh, at the office here thanks and, and have a great week We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 